From the Las Vegas Review-Journal studio, welcome to Season 2 of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, presented by Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by El Cortez and the Golden Steer. A heads up before we get started. Mobbed Up contains explicit content such as strong language and depictions of violence, including murder. Please be advised that this podcast might not be suitable for all audiences. The Midnight Idol, Wayne Newton, was at the height of his career on the Las Vegas Strip in 1980. He had been the number one headliner at numerous hotels, including the Frontier and Sands. News reports at the time indicated he was making $12 million a year. His show was a must-see for any tourist. Johnny Carson was NBC's top dog, a power to be reckoned with in Hollywood. His long reign over late-night television was responsible for a massive share of NBC's profits. It seemed like everybody watched The Tonight Show before they went to bed. And now, here's Johnny! Carson was also well-connected to Las Vegas. He co-owned a television station and performed stand-up comedy on weekends at the Sahara and Caesars Palace. He was popular in his own right on the Strip. For years, the two men were friendly and professional. Newton had even been asked to guest host for Carson several times during some 30 appearances on the show. In a 1974 appearance, Newton and Carson discussed ranching and working in Vegas. You work more than any other performer I know in the city of Las Vegas. Well, I live there, which makes it a, a lot nicer. Yeah. You, know, I you have a ranch there, don't you? I have two ranches. I have one in, uh, about 10 minutes from uh, this. Is that one for people who don't like horses or what? I mean, that's classy, two ranches. No. But their relationship took a sharp turn after Newton got the upper hand in their bitter battle to buy the mob-controlled Aladdin Hotel. Carson started skewering Newton in monologues. He was very, very angry with me and started doing jokes on his show and having other comedians join in with those jokes about my lack of manhood, <laughs> I guess is the best way to say it. And this went on for about two to three years. And I contacted his agent. I contacted his friends. I tried to contact him, and of course he refused my call, but it just continued. And there was no rhyme or reason for it. No truth in fact at all. It was just his being so bent out of shape that I had ended up with the hotel. So one day, as Newton tells the story, he simply walked into Carson's office unannounced and told him he'd kick his butt if the nasty monologue jokes didn't stop. But moving the Aladdin beyond mob associations would take a lot more than a Newton versus Carson competition. In fact, an old friend who helped Newton in an hour of need would tie organized crime to the Aladdin once more and turn Newton's reputation upside down. That whole thing turned into a nightmare with the fact that I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. I'm Jeff Gehrman, an investigative reporter with the Las Vegas Review-Journal. 
In partnership with the Mob Museum, I'm your guide for season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, a true story about money. And so it was their piggy bank. They had the ability to get loans for whoever they wanted to get loans for. He just hit us like a tidal wave. Crime. You're in with every gangster and hoodlum in the United States. I don't go for that, Mr. Kennedy. I don't go for that kind of action. I emptied that revolver in his head, then he still was alive. And the battle to control the strip. I was on television accused of fronting for the mob. We were very angry and very upset, and we knew we had been double-crossed. I was really worried about the state of Nevada because uh, it, it was on trial also. I've covered organized crime from the streets to the boardrooms of the Strip for more than 40 years. In season two, I'll take you on a fascinating journey as the FBI and state of Nevada take on the mob families. Federal judges battle prosecutors, and two of the biggest names in entertainment fight for the right to replace the mob on the Strip. book, Johnny Carson's longtime lawyer, Henry Bushkin, says the legendary Tonight Show host had become increasingly annoyed about being portrayed publicly as having lost to Newton in the bidding war for the Aladdin. Newton had telephoned Bushkin several times in the months leading up to that infamous confrontation. He wanted Carson to stop ridiculing him on national television. Bushkin tried, but Carson wouldn't let up. That left Newton with only one choice. I was recording, I'll never forget it. I was recording a religious album of all things at Capitol Records. And I'm in the studio and the drummer says to me, uh, did you watch television last night? I said, no, I was working last night. And he said, good. I said, why? And he said, well, Carson really went off on you last night. He said things like, uh, Geez, we saw Wayne Newton and Liberace in a bathtub, and nobody knows what they were doing. Now, A, it wasn't funny. B, wasn't true. But it hit me like a ton of brick, and I thought, I've had it. So Newton told his drummer to lay down the tracks to the album, and he'd be back. Got in my car. Drove to Burbank. Walked in NBC, and luckily the guys at the gate recognized me. Hey, Wayne, how's it going? Good to see you. Come on in. Because they assumed that I had a meeting. And I walked through the front desk where security was there also. And it was the same. Hey, Wayne, good to see you. Come on in. And I said, which way is uh, Mr. Carson's office? And so I went to his office. Freddie de Cordova, who was his producer of his show, was in a meeting with him, but the door was open. And so I walked in past his secretary. Newton told Carson that he was normally an easygoing guy, but Carson had crossed the line. And I said to Freddie, would you excuse us? And he got up and left. I closed the door behind him, and Carson's eyes were about this big. And I proceeded to tell him what my plans were for him. If I ever heard him say my name again, I told him I would clean up the office with his butt. 
Newton says Carson never again referred to him during a monologue. Months before the confrontation, a disturbing incident played out that would have an unexpected impact on Newton's ability to take control of the Aladdin. Of course, it involved the mob. Newton's career was riding high. He was outdrawing legends like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin on the strip, and he was on the verge of becoming the first entertainer to own a major Las Vegas casino. But one night in February 1980, Newton got a harrowing phone call at his Casa de Shenandoah estate in Las Vegas. My wife at the time and my daughter, my oldest daughter, we were home and my wife picks up the phone and a guy starts to tell her where my daughter went to school, what classroom she was in, and what parts of her body they were gonna send us in the mail. Soon, more frightening calls came to his home and to his strip hotel dressing room. The threat started after he and his manager backed out of an investment in a Las Vegas tabloid. The publication had nothing to do with the Aladdin, but how Newton dealt with the threats would bring him unwanted attention as he sought to buy the resort. Police told Newton they couldn't help him because no one had actually carried out the threats. He turned to someone with a shadier background someone he had known for years to put a stop to the threats. His name was Guido Pinosi, who, unknown to Newton, had suspected ties to both the Gambino and Lucchese Mafia families in New York. Pinosi brought in his cousin, Frank Piccolo, a reputed Gambino captain, and lo and behold, no more threats. Newton's relationship with Pinosi would end up attracting the interest of gaming regulators poring over his license application for the Aladdin. But more concerning for the Midnight Idol, NBC News would make sure the rest of the country heard about that relationship. It would haunt him for years. Still, Newton says he liked the idea of having his own hotel. He teamed up with longtime casino executive Ed Torres. Gaming regulators had just turned down a bid for the Aladdin by Torres and another partner, Delbert Coleman, over some questionable associations. I could see the evolution of the hotels changing as a result of them being owned now by corporations and not individuals. And so with that change came changes in the entertainment policy. You couldn't get answers anymore if you wanted to do certain things on stage. And so the ability to own a hotel appealed to me at that time because I had not owned a hotel. Newton thought he could bring a face to it and make it more attractive to tourists. Caesar's Palace had a face, Flamingo had a face, on and on and on, and they still do, obviously. But the Aladdin was so new that I felt that maybe it having a face is what would set it apart from failing or succeeding. It truly wasn't a thing for me in terms of ego or anything like that. It was the fact that I wanted to walk on stage and I wanted it to be my own stage. Newton says the owner of the local bank, who agreed to back his Aladdin bid, had a condition for loaning him the money. He said to me, if you'll take in Eddie Torres as your partner, we'll finance your loan to buy the hotel. Torres had given Newton his first job as a lounge singer at the Fremont. He performed there with his brother, Jerry. 
He was the one that auditioned me when I was 15, and he was running the Fremont Hotel. And so I had no interest truly in managing the hotel because that was way out of my ability, and I knew that. But I thought it would be great to own it and appear there, and I felt like I was coming home doing that. But Johnny Carson, one of the most powerful people in entertainment, was also looking for something new and challenging in his life. We'll be back after a break. Ed Nigro was a longtime Las Vegas gaming executive and a perfect partner for Johnny Carson in his bid to buy the Aladdin. Nigro had just left the Dell Webb Corporation to start his own company in search of a casino property. He became good friends with Carson while he ran the Sahara Hotel for Dell Webb. We were going to rename it Johnny Carson's Aladdin and my company was gonna have the management contract to operate it. And that management contract I had prepared and it was ironclad because Johnny and I had one agreement with each other that was very important. If he and I were gonna be involved, he would put his name on it and I would run it. And no one else would operate it but my company. Nigro says Carson planned to bring in Broadway shows to the Aladdin Theater for the Performing Arts and build a television studio to broadcast The Tonight Show live from the Strip for a good portion of the year. About the same time, federal judge Harry Claiborne, who had blocked the state from shutting down the Aladdin while it sought a new owner, wanted Nigro to take over management of the Strip Resort. The state had barred the Aladdin owners from having any role in operating the casino after the company's federal conviction in Detroit for giving the mob hidden management interests. Once Nigro set up shop at the Aladdin, he saw that the financial books were a mess. Internal company controls weren't being followed. It just was wide open. I took a whole team of 20 people in and we were able to shut down all of the leaks of money going everywhere. I think we had like 20 or 30 million in outstanding markers. It wasn't necessarily a large float, but were a lot of old ones that weren't being collected. And I found that they were issuing markers to people they wanted to pay and never collecting them. Nigro says revenues were being diverted from the bar operations. We had liquor coming in that wasn't bought by us and being sold. Imagine if you can bring liquor bottles to one of your big bars, it's very busy. It doesn't come through purchasing. And then you just take that money out because you don't have it in inventory, but you sold that. Your, your bar just shows lower volume that day. You don't know where the money went. There were purchasing scams too. The Aladdin was paying for things that were never delivered. You pay a company, sends you an invoice and you pay it. You never got anything from that company. Nigel recalls the time when Richard Daly, one of the Aladdin owners sanctioned by the state, wanted to pay what he said were legal bills. And he sent me about almost a million dollars in legal fees for various law firms. It was funny because there was a half a million dollar bill for Mara Schenker that I was supposed to pay. Schenker owned the Dunes Hotel and was one of Jimmy Hoffa's lawyers. Hoffa, the iconic Teamsters Union boss, played a key role in the development of the Las Vegas Strip through loans to casinos from the union's mob-dominated pension fund. 
Hoffa disappeared in July 1975 and was presumed murdered by the mob. Nigro was dumbfounded by Daly's request. So I looked at this, this bills and I called Richard up and I said, Richard, are you serious? You, you really want me to, you think I'm really going to pay these without the judge's approval to pay it out of the Aladdin corporate business accounts? He said, yes. And I said, <laughs> so I went, denied all the payments and sent the request to the judge and the judge, I mean, he never answered me. But these were the kind of things that, I don't know, would another receiver have paid him? I certainly wasn't going to. I even knew Morris very well. And it was no attachments to it, just a bill for half a million dollars. No hours, no anything, not even what it was for. So I called Morris up and I said, Morris, what is this? He said, it's just something. I said, it's just something. He said, yeah, you want to pay it, pay it. You don't want to pay it, don't pay it. I said, okay. With Nigro at the helm of the Aladdin, Johnny Carson's chances of buying the joint looked pretty good. We improved the cash flow, and remember, they were losing a lot of money, but we improved the cash flow by over $4 million in four months. Then came the good news. The April 23, 1980 headline in one Vegas newspaper read, quote, Aladdin gets new genies. Johnny Carson and Ed Nigro had signed a letter of intent to buy the Aladdin for $103 million. A day earlier, Nigro had briefed Nevada gaming regulators about the deal in the chambers of federal judge Harry Claiborne. We didn't sign the letter of intent until we had all the agreements in place, all the financing in place, and the money that was going into it, the $10 million that was going in it the first year and the $5 million directly into the company, or $15 million, was all Johnny's money. People don't understand that those days... Johnny Carson was making 20, 30 million a year off of NBC. 30 million a year. Now, now Johnny had, was the real thing. He was the real deal. This was not a deal that might or might not happen. This was in place. And that's why we announced it, even with the letter of intent, because we had jumped through all the hoops. Nigro says the Aladdin still wasn't financially stable, and Carson agreed to pour $5 million into its operations immediately after taking over. So the, the real risk and danger to the Aladdin had already happened. It was on a going out of business curve because its future bookings were almost non-existent. So you had to be able to sustain operations during a time you started to build your business. Now, once we were going to announce it was Johnny Carson's Aladdin, our phones were lighting up like you couldn't believe. All the agents in the world wanted their stars appearing with us. But it's amazing how quickly fortunes can change in Las Vegas. The day after the letter of intent was signed, the Aladdin owner started moving to unwind the agreement. Nigro says the owner set up Newton's deal with Torres, who had been previously licensed by the state, despite concerns about some of his past business conduct. Torres was indicted in 1967 on tax charges related to an alleged skimming operation at the Fremont, where he was a top executive. But the charges were dismissed, allowing Torres to become a major stockholder in the Riviera in 1968. He went on to run other casinos. With Newton on board, it would be a clear path for Tories to get licensed at the Aladdin. Here's Nigro. Wayne was a prominent name in Las Vegas, a very good entertainer in Las Vegas. 
But he also was someone that they believed would be an easy partner because he was not an operator. He would not be operating it. It was very clear Eddie Torres was. Newton says the Aladdin owner simply soured on Carson's deal because he kept changing the terms. He agreed to the purchase price, and the minute he agreed to that, and all of the people accepted that offer, he then changed it and backed out of it. And so that's why I think the Carson fiasco, if you will, turned into four and five offers that he would back out of and then make them a lesser offer to the extent that he insulted them. And they called me one night because I had made a backup offer still to be negotiated, but at least they knew there was a second offer there. I came off stage at the Sands where I was appearing and I get a call and they said, is your offer good for the Aladdin purchase? And I said, well, yes. And they said, we'll be here at eight o'clock in the morning. We'll sign the papers. Uh, we're through with Carson. We don't care who gets the hotel. It's not going to be him. Eventually, Newton and Torres put together a package to buy the Aladdin for $85 million. By that time, the value of the resort had diminished. Judge Claiborne had given up control, and the state had moved to close the casino again until a sale agreement was finalized. During all of this, I wound up with a brief interview with Carson. I remember calling him in Burbank, California, and being put on hold. Now I'm thinking, he's not going to talk to me. His assistant is going to tell me he's not available. But to my surprise, a voice came on and said, Hi, Jeff. This is Johnny Carson. When Carson concluded the interview a few minutes later, I had a scoop. He called Newton's effort to buy the Aladdin a, quote, cutesy publicity stunt. Newton didn't think much of the jab. I think he was confusing himself for me. To me, it was just another performer that decided he wanted to own his own business. There wasn't the personal element uh, in my attitude about him negotiating because if the former owners had accepted his deal, mine was dead in the water. So it wasn't a thing that I couldn't get along with Johnny Carson. It was the fact that they couldn't get along with Johnny Carson. So therefore, that gave my offer some validity. Nigro says that he and Carson were not trying to change the deal. They signed one and only one contract on April 23rd, 1980. We were, we were very angry and very upset and we knew we had been double-crossed. So, and we knew that the judge went along with it and that the state went along with it. And that's what disappointed me the most. So Nigro submitted his resignation to Claiborne as the Aladdin's court-appointed manager. Carson issued a news release saying he and Nigro were disappointed that their deal had fallen through. He accused the outcast Aladdin owners of subjecting him to, quote, bad faith dealings. What he said at the end of the release was that he was very concerned of our state's ability to control the gaming industry. Because here, they had licensed Eddie Torres, and he knew exactly who he was. They had, uh, again, sort of passed the baton and kept the mob-involved people of the past involved today in 1980, which he considered that unacceptable to him. 
Johnny tended to be a very black and white guy. There's no gray area. So what he did is he said, Ed, I want you to leave the state too. Let's just get out of that state. If they're gonna do things like this and take this deal, which we knew didn't have near the chance of success that ours did because of the funds we were putting into the operation. Nigro says Carson stopped appearing on the strip and sold his interest in the local television station, KVVU Channel 5. And he left the state and never came back. And that's sad because he was an enormous personality with enormous reach. Coming up, remember Wayne Newton's effort to get those death threats called off against his young daughter and how he reached out to reputed mob figure Guido Pinossi? Well, Newton's association with Pinossi surfaces publicly as Newton goes before gaming regulators seeking approval for his purchase of the Aladdin. But not everything about that relationship comes to light. Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas Season 2 continues after a word from our sponsors. Anyone who goes before Nevada gaming regulators seeking approval for a license knows it sometimes can be an unpleasant experience. Investigators pore over your entire background. Nevada has a two-tier system of gaming regulation. There's the Gaming Control Board, the Investigative Agency, and then there's the Gaming Commission, the last word. You need approval from both agencies. At the time, the Gaming Commission was chaired by Harry Reid, an ambitious Democrat who went on to become Majority Leader of the U.S. Senate. Over a two-day period, September 25th and 26th, 1980, Newton appeared separately before the Control Board and the Commission. They went through everything in my life, including my dental records. Two or three members of the board were very, very anti-entertainer-owning a hotel in Las Vegas and they made it quite clear that they were not thrilled with that. And they said to me, you will have to divest yourself of one or two of your friends before we would consider giving you a license. And I said to them in open hearing, my friends are not for sale. And if it takes you telling me who my friend is or that they are not wanted because they're a friend of mine or I'm not wanted because I'm a friend of theirs, then I don't want this license. And I will never forget now Senator Reed stood up and he said, Wayne, you have no idea how refreshing it is to have someone say that to this group. Newton told regulators that Guido Pinossi was a longtime fan and family friend. He didn't know he was tied to the Gambino crime family. Newton testified that he had met Pinossi at the Copacabana nightclub in New York while performing there. He recalled the time Pinossi waved a $100 bill at him for a song and the young singer refused the money. Newton acknowledged he had seen Pinossi several other times over the years, including a dinner in Florida. Newton's call to Pinossi for help with the threats against his daughter earlier in the year did not come up during the hearings. Harry Reid says he didn't like how Newton was being treated during the Gaming Commission hearing. Wayne Newton was Mr. Republican. He had used his name against everything I tried to do. 
he was really a dyed-in-the-wool Republican. And I knew that. But during the hearing, I thought my fellow commissioners were too hard on him. Reed felt he needed to reestablish Newton's credibility at the hearing after commissioners started, in Reed's words, beating him up. I saved I saved Wayne Newton. And he never forgot that. He never, ever forgot that. Wayne Newton, Mr. Republican, in the years that followed long after this, um, he was just, uh, when I'd ask him to do anything, he would do it. Newton thinks some of the gaming commissioners were trying to bring life back to Johnny Carson's bid. But in the end, with Reed's help, Newton prevailed. In fact, I'm very proud to say not only did I get the license, but I am also the only person that I know of, other than Howard Hughes, that got a second license without going through all of that nonsense again. Nevada's Republican governor at the time, Robert List, who had gotten campaign support from Newton, says the singer held up well during the hearings. They discounted the validity. They discounted the validity of the allegations of mob involvement. They believed Wayne. They accepted his word. Michael Green, a history professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, says regulators saw the licensing of Newton and Torres as a good ending for the state. I think there's a sigh of relief. We're finally going to get this under control. We're going to get the Aladdin into safe hands, and Newton's fine, and Torres is fine. They certainly were more appealing and a lot cleaner than the people who preceded them. And so with the approval of gaming authorities, Newton was on his way to putting his stamp on the Aladdin. He hardly had time to celebrate. A week after the Aladdin hearings, NBC News came out with a sensational report revealing more details about Newton's association with Pinosi and how his cousin, reputed mobster Frank Piccolo, got involved. You'll hear all about Pinosi and Piccolo and Newton's hard-fought lawsuit to clear his name in a later episode. Brian Ross was the NBC News reporter. And at one point, we were told, as they were listening on the wire, a call came in to Frank Piccolo from Wayne Newton, which then uh, caused a lot of concern by uh, law enforcement. But first, coming up in season two of Mobbed Up, The Fight for Las Vegas, Governor List and other state officials will take you inside their campaign against organized crime's hidden control over the Aladdin and other casinos, and how they dealt with threats to their lives. List, who at one point had to wear a bulletproof vest, says the task was enormous. It was half the Las Vegas Strip. Basically cleaned the mob out. Every one of them was told, you know, we have the facts, we have the evidence. You guys are gonna get out. This has been part four, season two of Mobbed Up, a production for the Las Vegas Review Journal in partnership with the Mob Museum. If you are enjoying it, please subscribe to the series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Help us out by telling your friends and by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This series is reported by me, Jeff Gehrman, field and studio recording by Larry Meir, and audio engineering by Greg Conway. Wayne Newton was interviewed by Review Journal columnist John Katsilomidis. We would like to thank our Mobbed Up Season 2 presenting sponsor, Pro Group Management. Additional sponsorship provided by The Golden Steer and El Cortez.